with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. And welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. In today's show, we'll talk about why is the euro falling and what does it mean for the eurozone economy. And Twitter's lawsuit against Elon Musk. A judge ordered the case to go to trial in October. And now let's begin with our top story. The euro fell below parity with the U.S. dollar recently, the first time that has happened in 20 years. Analysts say the euro's value fall against the dollar is closely linked to the energy crisis that Europe has been experiencing since the start of the Russian-Ukraine conflict. Meanwhile, the latest figures show that the eurozone inflation rose by 8.6 percent year-on-year in June, the highest level on record. The figure marked a significant jump from 8.1 percent in the previous months. And almost half of the high inflation resulted from energy and food prices, plus services, as the third factor. So, what does the euro-dollar parity mean for the eurozone economy? How will it complicate the inflation issue? And will Europe head into a recession? For more on this, join us on the line now are Dr. Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China, and Ina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. So, Ina, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. So, first of all, Ina, the euro fell below parity with the U.S. dollar recently. So, what are the main factors behind this? Well, it, it's a vicious cycle that's、uh, going on. What you have is,、uh, you know, the U.S. is trying to deal with inflation on its side、uh, by raising interest rates. So, what happens? That becomes more、uh, desirable in terms of investments to put your money into the dollar. That weakens the EU currency. Plus, all of this inflation、uh, is really, you know, it's not only affecting people's lives, but when the Euro goes down. That makes it even more expensive to buy food and energy. So、uh, wages go down. That puts pressure on you know companies you know to raise wages for the people, but they're not keeping up. I mean, at this rate, they cannot keep up. So as a result, you're seeing a downgrade in the amount of money that people actually have disposable income. And it's really a mess.、Uh, you're going to see a lot of movement towards uh, raising. Uh, Uh, you know, rates if they can, but right now the EU has been fairly timid.、Mm. And so, Dan, when we talk about the different factors,、uh, I want to ask you, what role is the energy prices playing in the soaring inflation numbers since the start of the、uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict? Uh, the Russian-Ukraine conflict basically pushed up the energy、uh, prices significantly, and it has changed the outlook to the energy security risk in the eurozone. And it just looks like that the gas shortage and oil shortage will last for a fairly long time, and that translates into a persistent inflation for many countries. And with、uh, the reluctance of the ECB rate. Uh, raising the interest、uh, interest rates in the short time, and that has posed a high risk of many countries sliding into a recession. And we think、uh, the energy crisis could persist probably well into the next year, 
And by then, for many countries, uh, there will be there will be high inflation, there will be high debt, and that could be a very difficult problem to resolve. Mm. And Ina, so Germany is the region's leading economic powerhouse. So, to what extent does German rely on Russia for its oil and gas, and how do the energy prices impact uh, the country's manufacturing industry, the exports, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? Well, I mean, it's. Germany relies on、uh, almost 40% of its、uh, energy coming from Russia, so it's not really replaceable. And gas, in particular, is very difficult, and it's just simply one area to the other. And you've seen seven x increase in、uh, the price of gas in 2022. That means it's seven times more expensive to buy gas now than it was on January 1st. And this is really very hard because you cannot replace it. Have something. If you have a gas-burning stove, I mean, you can't switch to coal. All right, you can't switch to oil. If you have a, a gas turbine, you cannot go with another alternative fuel. And this is really roiling the economy. On top of that, you have logistics concerns、uh, because of, of COVID-19, also tariffs.、Uh, it's really, as I said、uh, before, it's this really vicious. Downward cycle where a number of issues are doing it, and one of the things people should be aware of, especially for Germany,、uh, part of the inflation that is in Europe and in Germany is because of the U.S.、Uh, there are different flavors of inflation, and in Europe right now, it's all about supply-side shortages that are driving up prices. But in the U.S., because of the stimulus, it's about demand. Uh, side uh, pressures that are pushing things up, but that demand for、uh, goods and services also translates to the rest of the world, including Europe. So right now,、uh, you have、uh, different banks kind of looking at、uh, how to address this, but Germany is really going to be affected. It's the powerhouse of Europe、uh, in terms of economics and exports, and it is literally. Having problems just getting parts to make sure that its industries work, let alone having enough energy to run them.、Mm. And then, so Germany has reported its first monthly trade deficit in 30 years. So, how prepared is Germany for its energy supply needs this winter?、Uh, I would say it's prepared well enough. If we look at、uh, the macroeconomic figures. Uh, Germany used to rely on the Russian oil、uh, more significantly than now.、Uh, it had the dependence on Russian oil of 35 percent, but since the start of the war,、uh, this number has been reduced to 12 percent, and its dependence on Russian gas has declined from 55 percent to 35 percent. So it looks. Uh, like uh, it has some cushion、um, by shifting the supply from Russia to a few other countries, but to resolve the domestic shortage of all those energy、uh, and energy products, it will need more support from the Middle East and from the U.S.、Uh, because we're not that far away from the winter. It's going to be quite difficult for it to fill、uh, fill in all the gap before then. Mm. And then now, with the euro reaching the parity with the U.S. dollar, what kind of psychological impact does it have for the、uh, eurozone? 
And the psychological uh, shock is pretty obvious in the market um, because when the Eurozone was first created, it was uh, aiming to prevent such kind of weakness against dollar. And now, given that the inflation has become a rather permanent uh, instead of a transitory phenomenon. Uh, the Eurozone is not well prepared in terms of how to defend its currency while holding down the inflation. And such weak exchange rate would eventually pass through into the Eurozone inflation and driving it up furthermore. And I think one thing the ECB can do is to hike the interest rate fairly fast uh, following the model of the Federal Reserve. But it just doesn't seem a very good option for a few countries because they're high in debt. Mm. And so, Aina, so what does a weaker euro mean for the business and consumers? Well, sometimes economies like a weaker currency because it makes their goods more competitive. But when you start looking at Europe and its uh, you know, dependency on uh, imports, it is not good. Uh, we're really reaching almost terminal velocity here. And I would disagree with Dr. Wandan on this issue. Germany is not prepared. If Russia cuts off the gas line, there is nowhere you can make up the difference. It's going to be very difficult. It's going to push oil prices higher, increasing inflation even more. So at this point, Germany is looking uh, literally, as I said, you know, at terminal velocity over the short term, where it's going to have an extremely devastating effect on their economy. Long term, they you know they signed deals with the UAE. They've gone uh, to Qatar. They're talking about all these places. But remember, none of that's going to happen until 2027. So it's a pipe dream if you think you can replace this energy at this point. Uh, oil will cost you more, and gas is non-existent because the facilities to compress the gas. Uh, create the gas, compress it, ship it, and then receive it are not in place at a, at a significant volume to uh, address this. Mm. And Aina, so Chief Economist Robin Brooks with the Institute of International Finance said on Twitter that uh, it is becoming increasingly clear that the Eurozone is heading into a recession. So do you agree with his assessment? Yeah, the question isn't a recession. The question is, is going to be a depression. A recession is two quarters of negative growth. Uh, the question with uh, Europe, given the situation I just talked about, that you know, energy is uh, solution is way out into the future, 2027. Um, you have the powerhouse of Europe, Germany going down. Uh, it is really, you know, how long is this going to last? And if it lasts beyond six months, we are into a major depression. And when that happens, nothing good is going to uh, come out of it. There is a need for all of the countries to get together, not only address first world issues, the ones we're talking about now, but whatever damage is being done here, it's going to be two to three times as much to uh, struggling, developing nations like Sri Lanka, the, which is going to be the first of one, many who are going to experience not only uh, you know, shortages and in inflation, but civil unrest. Mm, so, Dan, what's your assessment, recession or depression? Uh, I think at least in the short term, between the time of three to six months, there's more likely to be a deep recession uh, rather than a depression. Um, because for depression to happen, uh, the GDP can contract as high as 15 to 20 percent. Uh, I just don't see that happening in the eurozone area yet. Um, because its domestic demand has held up quite strongly. 
uh, in terms of consumption on the domestic investment and foreign tourism into those countries. Uh, and it just seems that the government's general subsidy uh, have uh, put a good buffer for the economic growth. So even with the high inflation and energy crisis, uh, I don't think the kind of uh, Great Depression phenomenon can happen. Mm. And Anna, so inflation in the Eurozone hit a record high of 8.6% in June. So how has the weakening Euro complicated the inflationary outlook for Europe? Well, I mean, it's just adding to it. It's going to see a weakening euro. That means everything that's being imported, especially energy, is going to be much more expensive. So, uh, you know, the euro, uh, I'm going to disagree once again with Dr. Wandan on this. Uh, there is no, no real good things happening. Yes, I agree. It's not that you're not going to have a depression within the next uh, uh, one or two quarters, but over the next couple of years, you could see uh, a real retraction uh, in uh, global GDP, especially in, in the Eurozone. Um, you know, it's fine right now to say that uh, tourism is up, but a lot of that is just revenge travel. There's a huge backlog of people who just said, I have to get out of here, I have to travel, I have to do something. Uh, in terms of spending, when real incomes, because inflation is higher, then wage increases. That means that real income is down. That means you cannot continue spending unless you're putting it on a credit card, and that is a road to disaster. So you're going to see you're seeing significant downgrades in terms of what people are buying. They're buying the cheapest things they can. They're buying more necessities, uh, and they just not going to have this uh, impetus to do it. And that's where I'm saying that you have a negative downward spiral when you have disposable income. Uh, people can buy more. That creates more jobs. It's this kind of virtuous cycle that goes up. But when you hit the other side of it, you're really looking at a, a very deep hole. And it's a question of how to get out of it. So far, no one's offering anything that even comes close to a solution. So then to what extent do the European sanctions on Russia affect Europe's economy? The European sanction on Russia has turned out to be almost a self-sanction. Um, because the shortage of energy and energy products have translated into the domestic inflation fairly fast. Uh, it's really hard to get rid of this kind of inflation um, because Eurozone itself cannot produce these uh, products. They have to rely on import. Uh, it is quite impossible to replace the Russian export of those energy, uh, energy products or, uh, with another country or another combination of the country uh, in a short time. So I don't think that uh, the euro, actually the Eurozone, can sustain this kind of sanction for too long um, because the domestic political support has been quite high so far. People seem to be willing to put up high inflation. Um, but the public mood swing has, can also change fairly fast uh, with the upcoming uh, election uh, in uh, the following, say, three to five years. Then there could be a significant change in how the public perceive uh, the effect of this sanction. And so, Aina, the U.S. Federal Reserve hiked the rates by 75 uh, basis points at last meeting, and it is expected to do the same next time or hike them even further. So what impacts do you expect the uh, aggressive interest rate hike in the U.S. to have on the European economy? 
Well, the, the U.S. is driving itself into a recession. It's going to basically take uh, the, the eurozone with them. Uh, this is a, a situation where they think to uh, you know to address this supply side shortage, they're going to decrease the amount of money. That that's fine if you're talking about cars or investment in luxury goods, uh, things that you can make choices about. But I don't make choices about food. I need it to live on a daily basis. And the same with energy. Without energy, I can't heat or cool myself, nor can I run my economy. So these kind of increases are going to continue regardless of what the Fed does. So they're in full panic mode. They're going to press the, the, uh, the rate button. And as a result, that's just going to hurry things even further down. And that's what I'm talking about, this downward cycle where they're depressing the economy, depressing the amount of uh, investment that's going to be made in the U.S., which is going to have an impact on future jobs and disposable income, and it just goes down and down. Mm, so, Dan, what do you think? What impacts do you expect the uh, aggressive interest rate hikes by the U.S. central bank to have on the European economy? Uh, the dollar has been strengthened by a lot since the start of this year. And with more rate hikes in the coming month, and we expect an even stronger dollar. And the global investors have been quite spooked by how many uncertainties there are uh, with the emerging markets and with also what's going on at the exporting economies in Latin America. So their money has been parked to the safe haven asset, including the treasuries in the U.S., Although different central banks have been offloading their holding of uh, the U.S. treasuries, the private investors have swooped in because they're worried about what's going to happen in other markets. And that's why I think with the strength of dollar like this, um, the euro has more room to actually depreciate, and that can exert even higher pressure for its domestic inflationary problem. Mm. So, Aina, what do you think? It seems that inflation is everywhere. So where can you park your money? You know, right now, um, the smart money is looking at China. Uh, China's inflation was at 2.5%. It's going to go higher, but it's not going to go as high as it's been in other areas. To give some kind of perspective on that, over the la- if you took the last five years uh, before uh, 2020, what you had was inflation in Europe was 1.7%. U.S., just over 2.5%. In China, it was 2%. So you had basically within a range a lot of parity. But today you see massive gaps. So, you know, businesses are looking at uh, countries that have the capabilities to handle uh, their economies, have the tools to do it, and have a proven record of doing it as a safer haven. So we're speaking with Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute and also Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China. And after a short break, we'll take a look at Elon Musk working away from the takeover of Twitter. Stay with us. Hello, this is Michael Zhang. Greetings from Los Angeles of the Golden State of California. Thank you today for making me part of your team. I truly enjoyed the debates we had and look forward to many more in the years to come.
You're listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. A U.S. judge has ordered Twitter's lawsuit against Elon Musk to go to trial in October. This is a blow to the world's richest man who had asked for a delay. Elon Musk walked away from his $44 billion U.S. dollars bid to buy Twitter earlier this month, and this is prompting the company to sue him. Musk's lawyer said Twitter made false and misleading statements, claiming that only 5% of his account are spam bots. So, Aina, first of all, Elon Musk said he was working away from his proposed $44 billion takeover of Twitter. So what are the possible reasons behind his decision? <laughs> well, it's kind of like his, uh, his personal life. It, it tends to be very impulsive. He was uh, very concerned about what Twitter represented on the stage. Then he started making these things. He was going to, you know, uh, uh, take care of it, kind of like with his pledge. He says, well, if you can explain to me how the money will be spent, I'll give you $5 billion to solve uh, you know, world hunger. Well, they did explain it, but he didn't follow through. And this is another instance of that. He, he got carried away with something, and now he's trying to back out. But legally, he's not in good position. Mm. And then, so there is a theory that uh, Musk still wants to buy Twitter. He's just trying to knock down the price. But why did he want to buy Twitter at the very beginning? Is it for money or is it for his ideal? Uh, it might be both. Uh, Elon Musk is a different type of entrepreneur. Uh, I always admire that. Uh, what he had claimed about what Twitter should represent resonated with me. Um, but he's also a businessman. And for businessmen, he has to have a good deal. Uh, in that regard, he's similar to Donald Trump. Uh, when he first made the offer, it was quite a high price, uh, considering how much the tech market has crashed since then. So it is almost like a uh, just a typical buyer's remorse. If you have paid too much, you just want to get rid of it uh, as soon as you can. Mm. And Aina, so he claimed that Twitter had not given information about the number of fake and spam accounts on the platform. And Musk's legal team wanted this trial to happen next year. So what are Musk's grounds for backing out of the Twitter takeover? Well, buyer's remorse is exactly the way I would put it. Uh, from a legal perspective, you know, he's this is not a consumer who's going into some, you know, car dealership and saying, oh, what's the price of this car and, and getting built. He is a extremely sophisticated investor. He knows full well that you have to do due diligence. You can't just say, oh, tell me about this thing. Is it great? Oh, really? Okay, well, I'll buy it. No. He's, you know, $44 billion is a lot of money by anyone's count. Uh, this idea that he was going to uh, just uh, take assurances and, and buy it is nonsense. He failed to do his own due diligence. Now he's claiming that he was somehow defrauded. Uh, but, you know, the reaction, as uh, Dan had said, I mean, the board literally jumped on his offer, you know, it was just record time. They, they, you know, they just hopped on top of it and said, "Hey, yes, we, we accept your offer," uh, and that's, you know, unfortunately, what happens when you are very mercurial. You like to make big, bold statements. Uh, you might be one of the most brilliant minds of our generation, but you also act sometimes like a four-year-old child. So, then, so how damaging is this situation for Twitter, the social media platform? 
I don't think it will damage the Twitter's business by too much because the main uh, economic woe for Twitter is due to its own uh, operation. It hasn't been very profitable in the past few decades. Uh, despite having probably the highest number of users um, among any social platforms. So Elon Musk pulling out could cause a short-term disruption and maybe some reshuffle in Twitter's top management team. Um, but to change Twitter's business model, it will take a lot longer. And it doesn't really have much to do with what Elon Musk is doing now. Mm. And so, Aina, so I'm sure lots of our listeners are confused about what's actually going on here and what's happened next because the Twitter board said they are going to enforce the deal. And in fact, they are saying if you want to walk away, you have to pay a certain amount of money. So please pay up. So what are the arguments on both sides and what strategies could be used by Twitter and Musk respectively? Well, I mean, the the, the uh, Twitter board is very simple. They say, look, we have a contract. You signed it. Uh, you either uh, go through with the contract or you pay the breakup fee. Uh, and it's that simple. And he says, don't tell us about, uh, you know, we defrauded you. You waived, waived, which means you gave up your opportunity to do due diligence and you signed a very quick deal. From Elon Musk's side, he's going to say, oh, gee, I, you know, I didn't know that there were all these uh, fake accounts. Um, that's going to be very hard for him to prove. He's talked about uh, fake accounts in the past. Um, if you have a concern about how many fake accounts are, you don't just rely on somebody, what somebody tells you. You do your own due diligence. As I said, this is not, you know, grandma going in and being built by some used car salesman. Uh, this sophisticated guy, he knows that uh, it's not a good situation for him legally. That's why his uh, lawyers are trying to delay things. They know that uh, Twitter is, uh, as Dan said, they're not in good financial position. He's hoping that a week in Twitter will come around either to a better deal that he likes or take a, a cut in the breakup fee in order to just get ca- get the cash. Mm. So, Aina, so if the acquisition is stopped, what do you think will be its impact on American society? Because uh, Musk himself is a big social media and is known to have lots of funds on his Twitter account. So how does he influence the uh, public opinions? Well, ask Donald, Donald Trump. You start your own uh, network and uh, try to hype it up. Uh, no, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious there. But, you know, the, the issue here is that um, there are plenty of competitors. If there's an open space that you can make money, you can do that. Twitter was all about selling data. And now governments have moved to make sure that you can't do that. So they don't have a revenue plan. They either have to uh, change dramatically and find a new way of making money or they will be they will go the way of other big tech giants who just simply disappeared because they could spend money but they couldn't make it. Mm. Well, we're speaking with Aina Tengen, senior fellow at the Taihe Institute and also Wang Dan, chief economist of Hansen Bank China. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>